Hello and welcome to RN this Sunday afternoon for Hindsight. Lorena Allen with you. Today to mark the passing of Gough Whitlam, a story which embodies many of the significant legacies of his Labor government and really takes us back to the turbulent 1970s, the decade which saw major social and cultural transformation in Australia. The rise of women's liberation, gay liberation and the so-called permissive society meant that the line between private behaviour and public life was beginning to break down. There was a new willingness to speak up about experiences of discrimination and a new urgency to push for change, especially to laws about homosexuality, abortion and domestic violence. The Whitlam government was full of reforming zeal when it was elected in late 1972, but while it couldn't change the laws around abortion, it did create something much more complex, a Royal Commission on Human Relationships. This inquiry into family and intimate life would go on to provoke outrage and resistance, but it opened up conversations about private life that we're still having today. Public Intimacies, the Royal Commission on Human Relationships, is produced and presented by Michelle Arrow. When we left you at the uh, end of last year, we were all in the middle of an election campaign. And one of the casualties uh, of that campaign was the report of the Royal Commission on Human Relationships. Their report understandably gives comfort and relief to homosexuals and to abortionists and to prostitutes and to the incestuously inclined and to the promiscuous. This was groundbreaking. I mean, in the whole history of Royal Commissions, in any country in the world, there had never been a royal commission into the intimate aspects of human relationships. I do not regret for one moment having cast a judgment on some aspects of that report that would legalise incest, that would legalise prostitution. I do find appalling and horrifying. Looking at the findings of a commission such as ours, we don't think that it, it only concerns those poor miserable people out there, you know, to whom everything happens and it's probably their fault anyway, because I think we must recognise that it concerns all of us. That's Anne Deverson. Also in there were former Prime Minister Malcolm Fraser, Gough Whitlam's Women's Affairs Advisor Elizabeth Reid, and an angry member of the audience of the ABC television programme Monday Conference. I'm Michelle Arrow, and for the last year I've been researching the history of the Royal Commission on Human Relationships, one of the most explosive and controversial social inquiries in Australia's history. Time for freedom, time for moving, it's time to begin, yes it's time. The story of the Royal Commission begins with the election of the Whitlam government in December 1972. As part of his agenda of reform, Gough Whitlam wanted to appeal to women voters, especially those in the new women's liberation movement, who wanted change to Australia's abortion laws. The right to choose a safe, legal abortion was a core issue for women's liberationists, and Whitlam had said he was in favour of abortion on request. South Australia had changed their law in 1970 to permit access to abortion in some cases, and access to abortion had been improved by judicial rulings in Victoria and New South Wales. But a federal decision on abortion could improve abortion access nationwide, and a debate in the parliament would have symbolic power. In May 1973, Environment Minister Moss Cass pushed for law reform in the ACT with a private member's bill that would permit a termination in the first 12 weeks of pregnancy. Elizabeth Reid had only just been appointed as the Prime Minister's advisor on women's affairs when the abortion debate unfolded. To this day, abortion divides our community and Parliament was in that sense representative of Australia 
So, yes, there were deep and passionate divides. So there were many members of the Labor Party who were extremely articulate in their opposition to the bill, formed allegiances and alliances with members in the Liberal Party who felt similarly strongly about it. The passion was behind the arguments and strong passions. After the bill was announced, there was intense public debate. Churches and anti-abortion groups mobilised, writing letters and petitions to members of parliament. And on the day of the debate, Women's Liberation members camped on the Parliament House lawn in a makeshift women's embassy to protest the lack of women's voices inside the House. I have had an abortion and many women have had abortions. And until they are, stop being ashamed to admit that they have had abortions. And you take the shame out of abortions. The Roman Catholic Archbishop of Melbourne, Cardinal Knox, has described abortion as the most important political issue facing Australia at the moment. I remember ironing my husband's shirts in the laundry and listening to that debate. Bobby Burke, who would go on to work for the Royal Commission on Human Relationships. And realising that everyone who was talking were men and that it was totally unacceptable that this should happen. We are told that as illegal abortions occur, we might as well legalise them. This argument is as specious as saying that as pot is smoked or burglaries occur, we might as well legalise them also. Abortion is a totally inadequate solution to a pregnant woman's economic and social needs. In the name of liberation, it imposes new burdens on women. And for the unsuspecting single girl who is aborted, the burdens in ill health can be life-lasting. The backlash to the women's movement and to abortion law reform and homosexual law reform was extremely strong, but particularly in, to abortion law reform. So it was a time of the heyday of the right to lifers. In the three or four months before the bill in 1973, we received maybe 13,000, 15,000 letters against abortion and maybe 100 in favour of it. Sue Wills was an active member of the women's and gay liberation movements when the abortion bill was debated, and she would later do research commissioned by the Royal Commission on Human Relationships. Today, she's a historian of women's liberation. I'm not sure that any of us were terribly optimistic that it would achieve much, but we were angry that it didn't... Even however minor a change it was, even that couldn't get through... I think we were pretty disappointed with the Consolation Prize, which was the setting up of a Royal Commission. What would eventually become the Royal Commission on Human Relationships was initially proposed by Race Matthews as a Royal Commission on Sex and Abortion in September 1973. He introduced another private member's bill which looked into setting up a committee of inquiry into a number of issues relating to sexuality, uh, and including abortion. Elizabeth Reid. So not passing a bill, not making a law, but, uh, but in fact bringing it into the social arena, into the area of discussion within our society. When the Commission began its work, it was in response to the abortion lobby. Gabrielle Hislop's father was the late Robert Hislop, who was the Royal Commission's official secretary. Gabrielle was a young left-wing activist at the time and her father's work gave her a unique insight into the workings of the Royal Commission. But rather than say we're going to investigate abortion, which would have been highly provocative, probably especially for a Labor government with a lot of Catholic constituents, it was broadened to mean it was going to deal with all sorts of aspects of male-female relationships and also, in the end, of gay relationships too, as it turned out. So the Royal Commission on Human Relationships was the product of a political compromise. Unable to agree on reform of abortion law, the Parliament agreed instead to establish a broad-ranging inquiry into the family, social, educational, legal and sexual aspects of male and female relationships. It was established on the 21st of August 1974. Sue Wills. So even, even then, I mean, Royal Commissions unless they're given special inquisitorial and they're very specific, um, don't achieve much. But it was an opportunity. And women's liberation groups, women's groups, 
as well as the Festival of Light and the Right to Life and all of the opposition groups and the educators and this, that and the other, we all thought, OK, we're going to have a go. It's six minutes past eight. A royal commission into male and female relationships is to be set up by the federal government. Cabinet has already approved the terms of reference and the membership of the commission, which will comprise the Anglican Archbishop of Brisbane. This was groundbreaking. I mean, in the whole history of royal commissions, in any country in the world, there had never been a royal commission into the intimate aspects of human relationships. Then the Prime Minister had to select his royal commissioners. In the end, what the Prime Minister wanted was that he, he wanted somebody chairing it with a legal background. He wanted somebody with a religious background on the committee and he also wanted a communicator, somebody who could take those findings back into the world. It came about in a most bizarre way, being asked, and that was uh, a phone call on a bank holiday Monday. Anne Deverson, writer and broadcaster. And uh, I answered the phone and a voice, man's voice said, um, I'm ringing to inquire if you'd be interested in doing a little job for the government. And I said, oh, well, what job? And the voice at the other end said, I'm afraid I can't tell you that. And I said, well, how can I tell you whether I want to do a job for the government unless you tell me? And he said, well, I'm sorry, I can't tell you. And I said, well, I'm sorry, I can't give you an answer. And he said, well, you could try guessing. And it was quite bizarre. And I said straight up, is it the Royal Commission on Human Relationships? Because I'd read about it and thought how interesting and how you know fascinating. And he said, oh, yes, warm, warm, very hot, hot. That's very hot, but I can't tell you. <laughs> and you'll be hearing from us very shortly. Elizabeth Reed rang me and asked me if I would be available to chair this commission. Already a judge, Elizabeth Evatt would go on to become the chief judge of the Family Court of Australia. Well, I was interested in the abortion question as a, a women's issue and I saw potential in the Commission for dealing with quite a lot of issues that were important from the point of view of women and equality. And why I was appointed, I can only think looking back, it clearly was a Commission that needed to reach out to people and uh, nobody I think had made room for, for a person who could help get the message of the Commission out or rather draw people in to give their own messages. The three royal commissioners were Anne Deverson, Elizabeth Evatt and Felix Arnott, the Anglican Archbishop of Brisbane. They began their work in late 1974. They were an impressive group, but they had a daunting task ahead of them. Their terms of reference were incredibly broad and expectations were high, not least from their staff. Bobby Burke, who worked on the commission as a stenographer, remembers an idealistic workplace. It was actually a very egalitarian group. Because it was so egalitarian, this confirmed the idea, really, that things would change. You know, we'd have a judge and an archbishop and, and everyone... You know, people called each other by their first names. There was a kitchen. We had offices in Westfield Towers. And as everybody knows who works in offices, nobody cleans up the kitchen. It's nobody's job, so nobody does it. And certainly the people who were stenographers, and that's what I was, we weren't going to do it. We thought, this is a commission on human relationships. You're not going to give the washing up to the women who do the typing. So I decided that we should have a roster. And uh, Robert Hislop, who was um, a very dignified and very proper public servant, he said, I don't suppose I'll be on it, Bobby. And I said, yes, Mr Hislop, everybody's on the list. He said, the judge? And I said, yes, everybody's on the roster. We all use the kitchen. And so the roster went up and everybody did their turn. I mean, that's a little thing, but it sort of it, it indicates how very um, accepting and egalitarian the whole thing was. You can't have a Royal Commission on Human Relationships if only some people wash up. You know. Women of the world unite! One struggle, one fight! The Commission worked throughout 1975, which was International Women's Year. The Commissioners had to quickly come to terms with the impact of the women's liberation movement on Australia's social landscape. 
Anne Deverson recalls an early visit to a women's health centre. Prior to going to the women's health centre, I decided that I'd better get something more suitable than jeans or whatever it was I was wearing, suitable for a royal commissioner to wear. So I bought a, a revoltingly ugly a brown and white a Hans Tooth check pantsuit, which was singularly unflattering, but perhaps that was correct, <laughs> and, a, and a brown leather briefcase. And off I set to the Women's Health Centre. And I can't remember who opened the door, but whoever it was was in charge of the centre at the time and was looking absolutely ecstatically happy to see me. And she said, oh, do come in, And She said, we're having such a wonderful time. We're all on the floor looking at our clitorises. Would you like to join them? And through my brain went, should a royal commissioner in a brown and white pantsuit be lying on the floor with a torch looking at her clitoris? What, what's the protocol for this, I'm thinking. And then I said, I said, look, thank you so much, but I, I've already seen my clitoris, so I think I'll, I, I, not just now, thank you. A lot of people are mystified about the work of the Royal Commission into Human Relationships, which was set up by the federal government. Anne Deverson is one of the commissioners, and this week Robin Maynard asked her why people are so mystified. I think one of the reasons for being mystified is that our terms of reference are enormously broad. This is the only commission, as far as we can tell, of its kind in the world. Now, in a way, I think it's a tremendously exciting challenge because it gives us a chance to look at the whole fabric of Australian society and not just at aspects, little compartments, so that uh, we can look at the underlying structures of society and see how they're affecting the individual. For instance, what does work do to families? Uh, Ultimately, we're supposed to make recommendations for legislative change or to recommend social programs. But I think our, our other function, apart from the recommendations, is the fact that I think we're educational. We're raising issues and asking people to think about their lives, uh, think about the things that are important to them. That in, in itself, I think, is, is of value. Anne Deverson on the ABC Radio Women's Programme, The Coming Out Show. Traditionally, Royal Commissions hear evidence from experts, and the Royal Commission on Human Relationships heard a lot of expert testimony. But what made this commission different was its determination to hear about the experiences of ordinary people, in their own words. People could write submissions or testify at a public hearing, but they could also speak to the Royal Commissioners and tell their stories directly. We weren't there to keep people out, we were there to draw people in. And, uh, and we had to do so in ways that reached them on their own turf. So that we had to go to sports fields, we went to shopping centres, we spruiked in shopping centres, you know. Um, and gradually the, the, the news got around about what we were doing. We had leaflets printed that said, what do you think? And they were distributed all, all over Australia. What do the people of Warrnambool think? <laughs> We went to Roselands one day. Faye Roberts, a young graduate clerk who worked for the Royal Commission. And we were just sitting in the shopping centre and people were encouraged to come up and talk to us. And for a young woman, this was, you know, very eye-opening because you'd get a much older woman coming and sitting next to you and telling you about how she never had sex without worrying about becoming pregnant. and. This was something I, I never did. <laughs> I never worried. I was a child of the, the contraceptive pill. In effect, the Royal Commission was a large-scale investigation into the private lives of Australians. While many were eager to share their experiences, some were suspicious. The Sydney Morning Herald described the Commission in 1974 as a synonym for futility, procrastination and extravagance where those with opinions on sliced bread and the sex lives of goldfish will be welcome to tell all. But it was clear that the Royal Commission was uncovering misinformation and ignorance on a wide scale, especially about sex, as this 1975 episode of This Day Tonight reveals. A gynaecologist by occupation. The royal part of any commission doesn't in fact mean very much, except to add formality. But not here. Gynaecologist Dr George Black, in evidence today, said he had in three years interviewed 750 women in his Sydney practice. Only three of these had an adequate knowledge of sex 
in all its aspects. And I find myself every week showing a woman for the first time where her clitoris is, and if her partner comes along with her, I, I show him as well. The Royal Commissioners did dozens of media interviews to encourage the public to make submissions and to help start a public conversation about private life. With women's issues so much to the fore these days, is it from women you get most submissions? Uh, generally there's been a balance, but certainly women's issues have been raised uh, pretty consistently and one that, that comes through loud and clear all the time is the fact that so many women are in conflict over what role they're supposed to play. Now, we get women ringing up who are at work and who yet have families and who are in conflict over this. Um, and we have women who stay at home, who've elected to stay at home, and they in turn have a feeling of conflict. Anne Deverson on The Coming Out Show. More than 1,000 written submissions came in on a wide range of topics, but many address questions around women and work. What would happen to home and family life when large numbers of women took up paid work outside the home? Judy, there is a debate at the moment as to whether women should be paid for housework. Did your submission support that contention? No, I didn't support a wage for housework for various reasons. Mother and teacher Judy Malcolm made a submission to the Commission on the question of a wage for housewives. Well, it's not a sort of job that can be regulated the way a job is on the market. I mean, the dignity of a job in the market is the fact that it's negotiated as a wage, starting and finishing times are stated, and if it's oppressive, if the employer is oppressive or the job is too much, you can simply quit as long as the market conditions are favourable. But in the case of housework, you don't have any regulated starting or finishing times. You can't quit if the job's oppressive and you can't negotiate your rate of pay. Yes, I think because women are privatised and individualised in their homes that uh, it's not often realised the suffering that they go through. Many people came to the Royal Commission and told stories of terrible pain and suffering. My husband wouldn't consider an abortion. I was desperate for one. I took my frustrations out on the unwanted child, and I still do. I should have been allowed an abortion. Those of us who belong to a despised minority group, like homosexuals, are like exiles in a strange land. Unlike other minority groups, we're often rejected by those closest to us, our own families. The attacks were always associated with drink. He'd knock me over, slap me, try to strangle me. The priest said, whatever you do, don't leave. And anyway, where could I go? These people who say that a woman is only raped if she wants to be, it isn't true. Because a man is far, far stronger than a woman. If you're going to get a hiding and then forced into sex, well, you soon learn very quickly just to give in. Because it's easier than to take a hiding. This was the era of women's liberation, of consciousness raising and the slogan, the personal is political. Telling your story of suffering became a political act, as Sue Wills explains. Until women started talking to other women about having been raped, and even when they started to do that, it was the shame. And patriarchy works well. You should feel ashamed for being raped, right? So don't talk about it. And to have somebody say, I have been raped, all the other women who heard that, ah, somebody's spoken about it, I can talk about it too. And you won't, it's, it's like coming out, he's coming out as a rape victim. It's the same thing. And it's in, actually, it's quite similar. The, the number of um, lesbians and homosexual men who thought I was the only one which was why coming out was so important. It told people, you're not the only one. In order to change something, you need enough people to say it needs changing. If there was only one rape victim in New South Wales in the 1970s, we wouldn't have had much change. Right? There were a lot. It's a man's world. Child abuse, rape in marriage, 
the consequences of unwanted pregnancies, these were not publicly debated things. To some extent, they were still regarded as private and personal and also not very nice. So you wouldn't want to talk about them in the media, much less over dinner tables. So, so this commission, and given the fact that three such reputable and well-liked and respected people were investigating these matters, meant that it became part of the public conversation. Gabrielle Hislop. Elizabeth Everett remembers listening to these stories. It is difficult to deal with the pain and sorrow of individual people. You somehow have to learn to absorb it, and we dealt with it, I think, by just talking about it among ourselves, and um, that helps. But, you know, to be professional, you, you have to turn whatever that is into an idea that you could use. And you couldn't always do that because sometimes people came who just wanted to relieve themselves of some terrible thing that had happened to them. You just had to let them talk. You're listening to Hindsight on RN. I'm Michelle Arrow and this is Public Intimacies, the Royal Commission on Human Relationships. A Royal Commission into Male and Female Relationships is to be set up by the Federal Government. A lot of people are mystified about the work of the Royal Commission into Human Relationships. We're raising issues and asking people to think about their lives. So many women are in conflict over what role they're supposed to play. Is it time that we had a fresh look at Australia's homosexuals to see where and how they fit into the community in the 1970s? The broad nature of the Royal Commission's terms of reference meant that its agenda was partly guided by the submissions it received. Canny interest groups, both progressive and conservative, saw the Commission as a way to have their voices heard. Camp New South Wales, the campaign against moral persecution, was the first modern homosexual rights organisation in Australia. CAMP members made a 30-page submission to the Commission outlining their arguments for reform at a time when male homosexuality was still illegal in most parts of the country. Well, having done the CAMP submission and having presented it to the Royal Commission, we'd done a press release. We used to go around in the car with, you know, hand-deliver all the press releases on the Sunday. Activist Peter DeWall and his then-partner, Mike Clossy, were part of the group who wrote the submission. Uh, Mike ended up being interviewed because he was the secretary of camp at the time. You talked a lot in your submission about homosexual families. How does a homosexual family work? Well, we define family as any grouping of people, however constituted, which considers itself a family. And we use that definition to try and convey the idea that a homosexual relationship is just a relationship. It's a relationship based on love, which um, people enter into for mutual support in the same way that you know, other people enter into families. What sort of a place is a homosexual marriage to bring up children in? Well, if I can redefine uh, homosexual marriage as homosexual family, because we, we don't accept the term marriage. We think it's a quite suitable atmosphere. We believe that what children need to be um, brought up as strong, independent people is love, and that can't be defined by structure. When we uh, had done the submission, he was working at Mara's brother's school at Eastwood, and, of course, the... Catholic hierarchy and its education office. Either saw him on the television or heard about it. Well, fairly soon after, he was told by the principal that he was no longer required. They sacked him. Last week, the secretary of the homosexual group CAMP, Mr Mike Clossy, appeared on AM outlining his group's submission to the Royal Commission on Human Relations, presently being held in Sydney. On the program, he made it clear that he was himself a homosexual, but there's been a penalty for coming out. Parents of the children that I was teaching uh, at the school where I was teaching rang the principal and complained bitterly about having a homosexual in the school and demanded that he take some action. The outcome was that he was instructed by the Catholic Education Office to dismiss me. The day camp was to talk to the submission we had made, we were there ready to give it, and then suddenly there was this absolute look like an army of these huge barristers and lawyers, and of course we had no idea 
that the Catholic Church would bring on these huge guns. I don't think we had any idea they would come. But of course they were very concerned about Mike Clossy presenting his case about his sacking. Mike Clossy wanted to present his sacking to the Royal Commission as evidence of the discrimination gay men faced. But the Catholic hierarchy of New South Wales, Mike's former employer, wanted to prevent him from speaking, arguing that the Royal Commission was not in fact able to hear evidence about homosexuality, that its terms of reference meant it could only hear about relationships between men and women. The Commission was forced to suspend hearing evidence on homosexuality to consider the challenge. And the outcome? I'm extremely jubilant for the homosexual community. The Catholic Church was trying to deny us freedom of speech before this commission, and we've won a great, great victory today. The Royal Commission decided that it could, and should, hear evidence about homosexuality. I think Mike, like many others of us, we had an enormous amount of courage, and we had a conviction that the way society was structured at the time uh, it could be improved on. And then to, you know, be welcomed in a way by the Royal Commission to present our views and be positive about it. The Governor-General of Australia do, by this my proclamation, dissolve the Senate and the House of Representatives. Given under my hand and the Great Seal of Australia, on the 11th of November, 1975, by His Excellency's command, Malcolm Fraser, Prime Minister, John R. Kerr, Governor-General. God save the Queen. When the Commission was set up in late 1974, three years had been set aside for its work. But everything changed after the dismissal of the Whitlam Government at the end of 1975. The new Fraser Government cut the Commission's funds and brought its final deadline forward by a year. We were only a year into our remit then, but we now had to settle down and say, OK, what are we going to make of all this? Of course, we were told we had to hurry as much as possible, as quickly as possible, and then we were actually told we had to finish by a certain date. So there was a determination to finish um, and a question mark about the carriage of the report afterwards, whether it would ever be debated in Parliament. No, it wouldn't. Even after its funds and time had been cut short, the Royal Commission's five-volume final report represented a significant achievement. It contained 511 recommendations on all aspects of family and intimate life, from decriminalising homosexuality and prostitution and providing sex education in schools, to things we now accept as commonplace, like suggesting that fathers could be present for the births of their children. The report was presented to the Governor-General on the 22nd of November 1977, under an embargo. But just a week later, 10 days before the 1977 federal election, a selection of the most contentious recommendations were leaked to the media. They included making abortions available to girls over 14, decriminalising homosexuality, and the decriminalisation of incest between consenting adults over 17. The report sounded like a catalogue of permissiveness and a political storm erupted. This is PM. Good evening from Hugh Evans. The federal government has publicly dissociated itself from the final report of the Royal Commission into Human Relationships because of a number of controversial recommendations in the report. The Prime Minister described the report today as appalling and said he believed it would fill every family in Australia with horror. What details have been told about some aspects of the report fill me with complete horror, they appall me. What? Well, look, I haven't examined it in detail. Once the leak erupted into the media, I remember the morning afterwards, the headlines in the papers were discussing report, um, commission should hang its head in shame, um, uh, filth revealed. I think there was a sense of dismay that we had. Uh, I think I felt anger, I think we all felt anger.
Amongst the first to fly into the attack on the report were a number of church leaders, including the national director of the Festival of Light, the Reverend Fred Nile. Well, the report, unfortunately, reflects the views of deviant lobby groups and the permissive trendies in our society, and it uses their jargon, such as decriminalisation, victimless crimes and so on. Under normal circumstances, the report wouldn't have surfaced publicly until it was tabled in Parliament, but somebody with an eye to the political implications of its subject matter made sure that it came out during this election campaign period. Broadcasting. On AM this morning, Prime Minister, you sidestepped the issue of the Royal Commission on Human Relations by talking about how horrified and appalled you thought people would be at some of its recommendations. What you didn't say was why you haven't instigated an inquiry uh, into the leaking of the Royal Commission's recommendations. And I ask, why haven't you begun such an inquiry into this leak this time, uh, a leak that appears to have come, like so many others, from uh, your own department? I don't know where that Royal Commission report came from. I do not believe it came from my department, and it was certainly without my knowledge. I would much have preferred it uh, hit the deck in the proper way, being uh, uh, tabled in the Parliament. And I don't believe on AM this morning I sidestep the issue at all. Gough Whitlam, in what would be his final election campaign as Labor leader, was keen to avoid opening up another front of attack, and he failed to offer any spirited defence of the report's recommendations. Uh, I'm not going to comment on it because uh, only the first volume's available. Now, why can't we get the whole document? Mr Fraser was uh, referring to dirty politics. He's now, I gather, uh, resorting to the politics of smut. You get the prefect getting the report, looking at it under the desk and looking for the dirty bits. I want to see the lot before I... In many cases, the commissioners had sought to update the law. Sexual offences against children within the family were no longer labelled incest, but they were nonetheless still crimes. In other cases, the recommendations were so shocking because they recognised the realities of how people lived, rather than attempting to enforce an absolute moral standard. When taken out of context, as they were in the initial leak, the recommendations on abortion, age of consent and homosexuality were confronting to many Australians, and the report became a political football. Do you regret having passed judgement of appalling on that report without having first read the 511 recommendations? Well, you wouldn't know what I'd read, would you? I do not regret for one moment having cast a judgment on some aspects of that report, which I'm quite certain the great majority of Australians would want me to condemn forthwith, and the reports that would legalise incest, that would legalise prostitution, I do find appalling and horrifying. So how did those first sensational recommendations break through the embargo and into the media? Elizabeth Evatt thinks that someone in the department which administered the Royal Commission probably leaked the recommendations. Somebody would have told the minister that we'd presented our report and they just said, well, let's see what we can do with it. I mean, in politics, do you blame them, really? But we were put on the back foot. We were forced into defence. Dr Arnott, does your report reflect attitudes of so-called deviant lobby groups? I think it's most unfair to say that. Uh, I think it's very unfortunate the way the report was sort of leaked out before the whole thing was on sale. At this stage, the media didn't have access to the full report. But soon after the first partial leak, a second leak happened. All five volumes made their way into the hands of journalists and the media coverage began to change as the complexity and depth of the report became clear. So who leaked it? I leaked it. Uh, I decided that if such uh, um, an unbalanced and damaging view had been laid before the general public in the newspapers, that a fairer view should be put before people as quickly as possible. And so I simply bundled as many copies as I could find in the boot of my car and uh, distributed them to amongst journalists uh, or people I thought would view the report in a way it should have been viewed, in other words, fairly. Um, And then, of course, I couldn't tell anyone until a long time had elapsed, (laughs) and eventually I did. Um, And I don't regret that at all. And Everson. The report showed that large numbers of Australians were ignorant about sex. 
that rape in marriage and domestic violence were commonplace and that discrimination against women was widespread. Perhaps most controversially, it showed that for many people, the family, far from being a place of safety and comfort, could be a place of danger, especially for women and children. This was a message that few people wanted to hear. This extract from the ABC TV program Monday Conference, where Anne Deverson and Elizabeth Evatt answered questions from the audience, shows the ways the report became a lightning rod for the clash of values in 70s Australia. Good evening, welcome back to Monday Conference. Uh, I'd like to put it just as simply as I could by suggesting to the two commissioners that where their report understandably gives comfort and relief to, uh, to homosexuals and to abortionists and to prostitutes and to the incestuously... Well, I do want to say it, if you don't mind, and to the incestuously inclined and to the promiscuous, that it really gives no comfort to ordinary Christian parents trying to raise their children in a Christian tradition. I'm pleased to see in your report, ladies, uh, that of all our institutions, the family is the most influential. But then I was a little saddened to see your definition of family. I thought that most Australians understood family to be mother, father and children. But your definition is this. We have chosen to use the term very broadly to cover a varying range of people living together in a relationship of commitment. You don't say to what? Our view is that we need to accommodate many different lifestyles and to learn from these experiences rather than reject them. I'm sorry, but I do feel that that tends to show a bias in the Commission against what is regarded by most Australians as the normal family pattern. Certainly the, the great majority of families in Australian society are those where the parents are married uh, and bringing up the children. But we shouldn't exclude from our consideration of the family other situations, for example, a single parent. And I don't think we should exclude either uh, people who are living together but who are not married and yet bringing up their children. They too have the same problems, the same joys and sorrows as others. I don't think that in our uh, study of the family and in our recommendations about the family, we should exclude those units. The report was finally, officially, presented to Parliament by Prime Minister Fraser on the 28th of February 1978. It was never debated in the House of Representatives, depriving the public of the opportunity to hear their MPs' views on the issues it raised. Robert Ellicott was Fraser's Minister for Home Affairs, Women's Affairs and the Capital Territory. He was given carriage of the report and its recommendations. But implementing the recommendations would be challenging, as he explains. I think the reason is most of the matters which were covered by it were matters for state action. And if the states don't take things up, you can't make them take them up. It's not enough for people like, say, Whitlam or... Fraser or others within the Commonwealth Government to believe that they're very important. In other words, the Commission's terms of reference were bound to lead to subject matters which were not the area for government um, or some might think too sensitive to do anything about. I think that the response to the report was not primarily a Liberal response to a Labor initiative. I think it was much more to do with the fact, and it's true, that what was in this report was dynamite. It was absolute dynamite. It was arguing and presenting the evidence for the fact that men were treating women appallingly in this country. That was probably the primary message that was coming out, that also adults were treating children appallingly. And there was so much involved in tackling those issues, I think that government ran a mile. But they could have dealt with them in a way that would not have been explosive. 
They could have commissioned further research. It's always a good way of responding to something that you don't really want to implement. And it needed further research, as the researchers had said. So there were all sorts of ways that they could have dealt with it, um, rather than just burying it. With more than 500 recommendations, keeping track of which ones were actually implemented was difficult. By 1980, when she gave an address at the National Press Club, Elizabeth Everett's impatience was clear. I want to ask why there has been no official response to the report of the Royal Commission on Human Relationships. When shall we know which of our recommendations are accepted and which will be implemented? I, for one, refuse to accept that the issues we dealt with should be ignored and set aside without consideration. Anne Deverson kept the report in the public eye by writing the best-selling book Australians at Risk, which presented the Commission's research to a broader audience, as she explained to Margaret Throsby in 1979. The book concerns Australians at risk, Mm -hmm. which is people who are in trouble of one kind or another. So the book is concerned specifically with those people rather than Australians in general. Ah, but this is my big theory at the moment. I seem to be banging the drum on this one. I think we are all at risk. And I think if we are honest and we look back in our lives, each and every one of us listening now will have been at some stage or other through one or more of the traumas that we dealt with. I mean, sure, we have times when we're, quote, happy, healthy, normally well-adjusted Australian families, and that's great. But how often does it happen that something quite unexpected occurs and you go through periods, you go through cycles in your life? Mm. So that I, I feel it's very important that in looking at the findings or the work of a commission such as ours, we don't kind of think that it, it only concerns those poor miserable people out there you know to whom everything happens and it's probably their fault anyway because I think we must recognize that uh, it concerns all of us. The achievements of the Royal Commission on Human Relationships aren't easily summarized. Many of its recommendations were not immediately implemented even though they provided a framework for reforms that did come to shape law and policy over time. But the Commission did uncover many aspects of private and intimate life that had previously been hidden, and it helped open up public discussion about issues like child abuse, abortion, rape, domestic violence, sex education and homosexuality. Today, these conversations are everywhere, but back in the mid-70s, this was very new, even shocking material for public debate. The report itself, I think, is a huge legacy. It encapsulates where we were and what people were thinking, a social document. The most important thing about that Royal Commission was the process, not its outcome. To give voice to people who'd been silenced, to give voice to people who were living in pain, to give voice to people who had dreams or things to say or aspirations. It may well have helped those people who were within systems who wanted to change to provide backup. It gave people ammunition. Wherever it dealt with a matter, it was an issue that needed attention politically, or an issue that needed to be understood. You know, this Royal Commission said basically, yes, you're right, something needs to change. The Royal Commission on Human Relationships was a place where thousands of people spoke openly about the reality of their lives. And it left behind a priceless snapshot of 1970s Australia. Skyhooks there, as if I needed to tell you, with Living in the 70s. Public Intimacies was presented and produced by historian Michelle Arrow. The supervising producer was Catherine Franey, and the sound engineer was Timothy Nicastri. And what a fitting recognition of the massive social reforms that Australia underwent, thanks to the late Gough Whitlam. 
For more on this story and more on RN's tribute to Gough Whitlam, just go to our homepage at abc.net.au slash radionational. And we're proud to say that this program won the multimedia category at the 2014 New South Wales Premier's History Awards. Thanks to all those who took part. And special thanks too to the National Archives of Australia, who supported this project through the Frederick Watson Fellowship. You're listening to Hindsight here on RN. I'm Lorena Allen. Next week, we bring you the story which we were going to play for you today to commemorate the 80th anniversary of a remarkable moment in the history of aviation. At 1am on Wednesday the 24th of October 1934, the KLM Royal Dutch Airlines DC-2 called the IVA touched down at Albury Racecourse after hitting severe storms on the last leg of the London to Melbourne air race. But the Ivers' safe landing would not have happened without the nous and the actions of the townsfolk of Albury. Their efforts on that wet night 80 years ago are now the stuff of legend. We do know from reports on the ground that the plane went close to Corriwong and close to Tawonga. My estimate is that they were certainly within minutes of crashing into the Australian Alps. You think about the time and how, you know, they've been through a war, they've been through a depression, the town is finding its feet, and then out of the skies, they hear in late at night, would you expect to hear a plane fly overhead? I mean, it would have been something that would have stopped everyone in their tracks. There was a sub-editor on the local newspaper and the city engineer and they decided to break into the electricity substation and to get control of the city lights to flash them. Tusio Korowa, in an endeavour to assist Pamentia and the crew of the Dutch aeroplane, the Iva, which is flying, apparently lost, in the vicinity of Albury. It is suggested that owners of cars in the Albury district should proceed to the Albury racecourse and with their headlamps, illuminate the course so that, should Parmentia decide to land, an illuminated ground will be prepared. It's a long, long way from Frisco Bay to Aussie's distant shore And yet one day there flew away a plane with a crew of four The dramatic story of the Iva emergency and the role played by the township of Albury next week on Hindsight here on RN. Thanks for tuning in today for our tribute to Gough Whitlam. As always, the details are on our website where you can listen or download a copy of today's program or leave us a comment. We always love to hear from you. I'm Lorena Allen. My thanks today to Joe Wallace. Enjoy the rest of your afternoon here on RN. We cover the waterfront on the Sunday Extra podcast this week, from the idea of evil in politics to the trials and tribulations of medical marijuana, from misogynist attacks and the underbelly of the internet to the irresistible rise of the bogan. Our outsiders wrestle with G20 and Ebola, and first dog on the moon? Well, dog has written a poem. You can stream or download the program from the RN website. <laughs>